Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. This is Auntie Vice. Here we're here today with uh, Dr. Dulcinea Pitagora. They are an LCSW, a PhD. They're a sex therapist in New York. Um, they went to NYU for their master's in social work. They got their doctorate in sexology from it's Widmer University, correct? I think they call it Widener, but. Yeah. Widener, okay. Um, yes, and uh, they've been on. They're known as the Kink Doctor online, and and have been on a bunch of of interviews and shows and all of that. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So you are the first person we've had on Fat Chicks who actually got a doctorate in soci- in sexology. Right. Oh. This is a relatively new field, um, a new way to get a doctorate. So what is a doctorate in sexology? Oh, well, yeah, I actually am not sure how new it is, but, um, but maybe it's becoming more common or something. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically, I look at it as a, so a PhD is like really a a deep dive into research and a specialization. Right. And so I always knew, um, from the time I started, when I went back to school, you know, a little older as a little older person, kind of non-traditional student, which, you know, what um, I'm super happy about, but whatever. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to work in these specific groups, like the groups that I'm a part of. Right. And so unfortunately in the typical therapist training, it's not, there's not a lot of like specializing or like, you know, depth in those areas. So um also, given that like my history being like a intersectionally stigmatized person, I have the I have this need to collect a bunch of letters. So I'm like, definitely love to go to school, love to do the research and academia and stuff and learn about sex and sexology. And um, so I'm not really answering your question. Sorry, but I'm like, it's saying other stuff. Uh, and so, you know, this is I guess I'm saying more why I did that. I was like, let me get this mm-hmm. PhD so that I can deal with my imposter syndrome. And then also I get to learn a bunch of stuff that I really want to learn and apply to my work. And so so, yeah, a doctor of sexology includes like sexuality educator training. Um, you get like the master's and master of education just thrown in there as a gift with purchase with your PhD. And so you know, that's super helpful because I also teach and like, I, you know, um, I don't know, my work is, it's helpful for my work too, I guess, um, supervising people, stuff like that. But, um, you know, it can be a lot of different things. Uh, that's what it is for me. But sexuality, as you know, is like such a huge area. 
And I think it's really, I'm really happy to hear that like more, there are more, maybe more awareness of PhDs and like clinical sexology, because there's such a lack of knowledge and training and not even just in my field, but just in like, you know, in the world at large. And so I feel like this is a sexuality, such an integral part of our identities. It's like, we need that. I feel like we need it. So I totally agree. I guess for me, it feels new because when I went back to graduate school, you know, when I was older, after I'd been out in the world for a minute, um, in the mid nineties, there were like three programs in the country that offered it. Um, So it seems like there are a lot more. There probably are more. And, you know, it's not surprising because, you know, with, um, you know, you and I were around to see the beginning of the internet, right? Like probably, like, I don't know. I, I remember weird internet stuff in like middle school being like, what is this blinking thing, a cursor thing? Anyway, um, you know, and so I think with that, become get there's a lot of community connection from disparate places. And so then the need has been recognized. So it makes sense, right? Like now there is more available because there's been a need. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, I think we're getting to a point where people are starting to recognize that sexuality is an integral part of being human, right? You can't, For so long, we set it aside and it was that special something that happened between a man and a woman when they're in love and after marriage. And but don't talk too much about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Never, never talk too much about it. And, you know, if you do anything weird, like with the lights on, please don't tell me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, before we do a deep dive into sexuality, I want to talk about going back as as an older student, because there are several people on here who've done that. Um, and I know a ton of people who think, well, I've been out of school for a minute. I don't want to go back with a bunch of 18 year olds throwing parties, right? Yeah. Which is legit. Um, what was it like going back as an older student? Totally. Yeah, I am. Um, I went to, um, I started out doing like the typical thing where I like, went to school right out of high school, but had to stop because I was like, this is not, this is bad timing for me and uh, let me do other things. And so, um, you know, and then it was over, I don't know how long it was after that, maybe 15 years or um, 10 or 15 years after that, I went back and to finish undergrad and then, then took a break for a while again, because I didn't know exactly about grad school. I wasn't ready for that either. So I had these different gaps. Um, Honestly, yeah, going back to school in in my 30s, going back to undergrad in my 30s, where there's a lot of people mm-hmm. in their, you know, early 20s, if that. Um, sure, that was like a different experience. But quite frankly, I've always felt like an outsider. And like, that just was nothing new for me. To, to, I don't know if that's like what people want to hear or not. But like, that was my experience. And so I'm like, oh, this feels like this tracks, like it's not that much different. I feel weird here and I've felt weird in other places. So, and also I was, I felt more prepared to do it. I felt like I didn't worry about needing to engage with people. I didn't want to, cause it's like, there's less, you know, you have more life experience of that. And so that counts for a lot in school too. I fear yeah. it can, you know, but yeah. Well, and I think when it comes to studying sexuality, you get such a different understanding at different points in your lifetime. Like how you understand yeah. sex in your 20s is very different as you get older. For sure. Yeah, definitely. And like by the time I went went to my PhD, like I was already, well, I mean, like I'm going to be 52 this year. So, but I like the math on when I was doing the PhD, like I guess I was in my 40s. <laughs> um, so 
you know, yeah, I, I went in knowing what I wanted out of it. And so mm-hmm. then it just was easier for me to be like, no, these are the things I'm going to research and study and like extract the information because PhDs are very, I think it's just set up to be very autonomous and you have to go after it type of thing. At least that's, that was my experience. So, um, but yeah, I agree. I think if anybody's questioning about whether to go back later and feeling stigma, um, in fact, somebody else was just telling me this was saying like, you know, I'm somebody my same age, um, early fifties saying like, I never got my undergrad degree and I think I'm ready to do that now, but I know I'm a little behind the curve. And I was like, please don't like that phrase means nothing to me behind the curve. Cause the curve is the technical definition is the statistical norm. Mm-hmm. And that's what curve means. Right. And so, which I know from training from school, but like, whatever. <laughs> And, but people don't think about it, but it's like, do you, and I knew the answer from this person mm. that said, I said, do you care? Like, do you care about being the norm, like normal person? Like, cause I know that I don't care about that. And I don't particularly need to fit into that. The want can't fit into that box. And she was like that. I thank you for saying that because no, I know I don't want that. And like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And this is what I want to do now. I'm like, great. Like you're going to bring all this life experience to it. It's time you do things when you're, you know, you're ready. I just don't believe in like following whatever the normal path is because you think you're supposed to, if you want to do that, great. Like, I'm not saying don't do that. If you know that you want to do it, but so many people just like don't know, and they just think they have to, it's like a default setting. And I feel kind of bad for for that, you know? And I completely agree. And I will say when I was teaching, I loved my returning students. They were so much more dedicated and focused and engaged. Yeah. Give me a room of 30 and 40 year olds, undergraduates any day over a room of 18 year olds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, though. Like uh, I, so I like teach at this one, this sexuality class at NYU and there's a mix, um, you know, you, but mostly it's a bit younger, but sometimes, you know, there are like, you know, Mm -hmm. a bit older students, but I am noticing that, um, it's different from when I was that age for sure. And it is because of like, people are more plugged in um, to the information that they want to be on the internet. So um, anyway, it's just interesting to see all that evolve and change and stuff. It is. It is. So you talk about being an outsider um, in, in multiple, in multiple senses. When did you discover the kink world and your role in the kink world? Well, it was, um, a really long process, you know, I, um, I had other things to work through and deal with, um, early, like, you know, early trauma in my life and then kind of getting my independence and stuff like that was really a priority and like figuring out how, how do I take care of myself? How do I live in the world? Right. And so, um, also at the same time being a sexual person always. Um, and so it's, it's one of those kind of things where at this point, when like knowing myself so much better now, like it's still a work in progress. Right. But like, you know, so much better. I can look back and say like, Oh, these things were like, I was doing, like, I had like a kinky friend, honestly, in fifth grade. And like, we were doing puppy play and stuff. And it's like, you know, it was cute. It was like, whatever. And like, it wasn't cute. Like it wasn't sexual. Like it was just, but there was a power dynamic, you know? And like, it was, and, and one, one of the kids, I remember one, one time saw us like doing this and was like, what, what are you doing? And I was like, I, I don't know, you know? And it, it was a little bit embarrassing. Cause we were like, we're just doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, don't make it weird, but like, it, then it got weird, you know? So stuff like that. And, um, so it just, you can, I can kind of see like the slow evolution, but like I said, it was, I had other things that to, to deal with. 
And so even though for me, sexuality is like a real, it's a core part of my identity. Like it is for, I think for a lot of people, maybe the majority of people, for some people, it's definitely not, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't really focus on myself the way I wanted to until, until later. Um, And so, and also part of what, what really informed me was doing sex work because I did sex work for a very long time in between. And while I was going to school, um, finally then retired when I was, you know, getting ready to change careers to be a therapist, which was actually very seamless transition. Like <laughs> surprisingly similar skills are used, like a lot of emotional labor, a lot of like entrepreneurial skills, but anyway. Um, so, you know, I got to explore, uh, my sexuality with other people that were like seeking services, which is, I learned so much from, you know, we all, I, I think that we all learn a lot from people around us and we're informed by other people. And sometimes we see ourselves in other people. Sometimes we see like, that's not me. I'm this. And like, you know what I mean? And so, so there was a lot in that. Um, but like I said, I was having some relationships that I didn't know until I began to really study sexuality and think more introspection uh, and, you know, introspect more about it so that I could recognize it and put words to it. Right. And it's, it's like, which is great. Cause then you can talk about it and do more of it, but it's also fine to not like have specific language around that stuff. I just didn't learn that until I learned it. Yeah. I think for so many of us, when you finally figure out there's a whole world that does the same thing you do, it's like finding a mother tongue that you didn't know you spoke. Cause it oh, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it really does. I mean, I have like one of my identities is being like, is my orientation has changed um, a lot since like learning about myself as well, but like, I never quite fit. And like, for me, kink is a sexual orientation mm-hmm. for me. Right. And so I'm also, I'm also queer um, and that has, but it's also morphed from like, you know, early on, not knowing there was anything other than like whatever straight was, except, you know, things that you're doing, you don't realize you're doing until you put words to them later. Right. And then realizing early on, oh, actually I'm, I'm bi, this is great. And then realizing like, oh no, actually I'm, I'm totally a lesbian. And then it's like, oh, but actually I'm doing kinky thing with things with cis men. So I'm, I guess I don't really feel like a lesbian. And every time I was like enjoining one of these communities, it just never quite, again, like I felt like an outsider. And I don't know if that's because of me feeling that way, some kind of stuff I need to unresolved, whatever that I need mm-hmm. to work through or needed to. But I tell you when I, after I've been in New York about almost 20 years, next year be 20 years. And when I got here, I decided like, I am really gonna, you know, I'm really gonna like, you know, look at myself and do what I want to do and be who I want to be. And I found the kink community pretty quickly because they're, you know, it's not hard to find here. And I was like, oh, it, it was just kind of like a relaxation. I was like, and it, listen, it's not perfect. There's no perfect no. anything. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was really, I felt like I, this feels right. Like I can, mm-hmm. you know, I'm feeling seen more now. I can just say things. I can really have free conversations now. And so that felt great, you know? Yeah. You speak of you finding the language around it. You also identify as non-binary. You use they, them pronouns. Yeah. When did that start and what was it like changing pronouns? Hmm. I mean, that's such a, I'll, I'll definitely tell you about my experience. It's such mm-hmm. a, but just to say like everyone's experience is different. Right. And right. so um, really like it's, it was again, in hindsight, I can remember being 
misgendered um, as again, interesting in fifth grade that mm-hmm. those, I remember those two things from fifth grade, but somebody was like, it was Halloween and I was the incredible Hulk. And so like, you know, somebody was like, you know, calling me a, a, a cute little boy or something. And I was like, and I don't identify as a man or a boy or anything, mm-hmm. but I also don't identify as a girl or a woman or anything. So, um, so yeah, but that was just like, it really sticks in my mind, but I never knew why. And I was also fine, you know, being hyper feminine doing, doing sex work because it's like, I made a lot of money doing that. So, and I, it was, I was successful doing that. So whatever. Great. Um, definitely objectified myself and like, you know, exploited myself for that. And like, I feel what it was positive way for me. Um, but yeah, again, it was really when I made that decision to kind of just to do the work and to really focus and let myself. And that also involved me getting like a support system and feeling like more, more secure and more stable. Um, uh, maybe fine. Just like mostly with support system. Cause it took a while to get, be, feel financially stable and all of that. And that's like, that's kind of a big deal too. Sometimes living in this world, especially yeah. in New York city, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was really when I started doing that and, and also doing studies. Um, so I was still doing sex work um, when I realized that I was gender fluid because I knew that, you know, I learned what that was. And I was like, oh, that again, it's like, oh, okay. Like I, that makes so much sense. Like it was just, I just thought that I was like, just this, this person on the fringe and like, who knows what's going on with me, right? Um, and then I was like, oh, this all makes so much sense. And then you feel like slowly, you know, coming in, like recognizing myself. And um, so using that language first and you still using feminine pronouns. And a lot of that was due to still doing sex work. I really was leaning into what I needed to do then and like not really thinking about it too much. But at the same time, I had a lot of um, clients when I was doing professional domination that I don't know how it happened. They started calling me, sir. They started calling me daddy. Like I must've said something or something must've happened. And like, I don't quite remember, but it was just like interesting in hindsight. Like it wasn't like a, now I'm going to do this for my gender. It was just like started happening. Um, and then, you know, just this slow evolution. And then finally, I guess, uh, I finally got, um, some, some good health insurance <laughs> And I was like, oh, wow, the things you can do with health insurance. I had never, I had been uninsured many times. I was on Medicaid before, you know, and then finally I lucked out and got this great health insurance. um, Thanks to my partner. And I was like, oh, you know what I can do is like, I've been working out like crazy and like not being able to like do what I want with my body, but I could take testosterone. And that's that I know will make some changes so I, that's like five years ago now. And, um, it, and it wasn't, I didn't change my pronouns. I'm like saying all this stuff mm-hmm. because you asked about pronouns, but that didn't happen until like, so after I started testosterone, I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And this is great. Like, I'm like, you know, I'm very happy about all of this. And then I decided to, that I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to do, get a top surgery uh, consultation who knew, like it was in the back of my mind for a while, but it just wasn't like, wasn't, my brain wasn't ready for it yet. It really wasn't until after I got top surgery. I'm like, I, you know, I asked everyone to start using they, them pronouns for me. And, you know, I just think for me, I it felt, unfortunately, I felt like I would be a burn it on people. And I, I felt like 
now, like I've done these things that feel great to me. And like, it's really obvious. It's becoming very obvious to people. And now I feel like I'm allowed to do that. And I kind of hate that it had to happen that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the world that we live in. Like, you know, you shouldn't, nobody should have to feel that way. People, you, you are who you are and it doesn't matter what other people see. Mm -hmm. You tell them, like, you know, we get to tell them other people who we are and how to refer to us. And that's correct. It doesn't matter if people see it or not, or understand, they don't have to understand. Hopefully they just respect us. And if they don't, then like, I would probably not choose to not spend time around that person, you know? So it, it was, I feel a little bit like that's the honest story. I wish Mm -hmm. it was different, but again, like this is my own stuff, you know, that I had to deal with. Well, and it's become so much easier to get gender affirming care. When I was going, you know, trying to figure out what gender meant to me um, when I was in college, it was like, people were always saying there's boys, there's girls, and then there's back. Like I was always somewhere not in there. Right. Um, And 30, 30, 35 years ago, therapists would say, well, then you need to transition to being male. Like it was still the binary and we didn't, we didn't have the language around it. One of the things people have mentioned on the show, because we have a lot of non-binary and trans folks on the show is that when they started low dose tea, Hmm. all of a sudden their mood issues stabilized. And all of a sudden they found themselves not dealing with depression or self-harm or some of these other things. Was that Hmm. a similar helping you get grounded in your body helped with some of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, for me, um, yeah, I, I definitely felt better. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, I was feeling like, I think I felt empowered and like agency and like, and seeing things happen that I was hoping would happen. And then some other things happened, you know, happened. I didn't know that I would like or be okay with, but I ended up really liking and, you know, just kind of going along for the ride. But but yeah, I, I think it does. I think a lot of people too um, get worried. Uh, there's this idea about starting testosterone and um, getting like T rage, like getting mm-hmm. like, you know, and I think that that's going to happen if that's going to happen, because that's just going on. And like, you are, you have rage, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe then you can access it where you couldn't before, or maybe it's just emphasized in some way, or maybe that's just who you are. But I think but like it does, but typically, and with clients I've worked with, with myself, like anecdotally, right. I hear much more of people, like the kind of thing that you're saying of people, um, they're doing something for themselves that feels right to them. And it's, it's helping a lot, you know, um, but it's not like a, you know, it's, it's not like a kind of a cure for everything. We still live in this world, you know, um, right. Like, right if, if my taking hormones could change the way everyone else acted in the world, that, how amazing, but no, it just does some things for me. And that's, that's fine. I'm good with that. But yeah, I did have that experience too. I definitely felt like my mood was generally better. I had, you know, more energy. I felt like I was just more me and like that felt better. That's great. So yeah. you also see clients, you specialize in LGBTQ stuff. Um what are you, so there's so much shit going on right now, especially around trans and LGBT law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what are you seeing people coming in? Are are people coping with this? Does the, the kind of the macro issues actually in, creep into people's lives or is it just like folks like me who was in politics for years and it's driving mm-hmm. them crazy? Oof. 
Yeah. No, it's, it's rough, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's particularly rough time and it, it actually has been for, as we know, for a long time, but there's just been so much stuff, uh, especially recently while this legislation flying around. And um, so I do work with a lot of queer people, a lot of trans people, but I, and I'm also a fair, a lot of kinky people. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of non-monogamous people. I'm seeing an uptick in like non-monogamous people, people doing couples therapy now. And I think that's because there's more um, things go, like people are going out more and mm-hmm. like doing more relationship stuff. So I think that that's kind of goes along with the trajectory, but um, in terms of like with, you know, with my trans and non-binary clients, um, you know, we're in New York city, which, or, or I'm in New York city. I forget actually, are we all in New York? Are you all? No, I'm in California. So That's right. I just thought, I totally forgot. And I, I figured, okay. I thought so. I'm like, wait yeah. a minute, it's not in New York. I'm in New yeah. York. <laughs> I, was, I was in New York for a decade, but now I'm out here. Yeah. yeah. So, but me and my clients are here in New York city, <laughs> which is, is a great place to be for trans folks um, in terms of protections and legislation mm-hmm. and diversity. Um, but it doesn't mean that that we're not, you know, people don't get affected by this. It's scary, right? It's it's scary because um, they're, you know, it's we most people still carry ar- around some internalized shame, stigma, and all that does is really crank that up notches, one or several notches. And you know, some of the people that I work with are really struggling for lots of reasons. Like I work with a lot of intersectional. Mm-hmm intersectionally identified people, like, for example, like sex workers who are trans, um, uh, also maybe disabled or also maybe, um, you know, kinky or like just all these different things and um, dealing with different things because of that. And so, you know, it's, it's very easy. And like, I think that I've noticed a correlation, right? The past few months with the legislation in the country and like some of my clients having like exacerbated symptoms, mm-hmm. even though they're not talking about, you know, they, it's their own stuff, but I just, it's way too much of a coincidence and you know, that, that that's happening at the same time. And the thing is, like I said, like this, these internalized, um, the, this stigma gets kicked up. It's, it's, it's all around us. We don't have to like, it doesn't have to be happening mm-hmm. Uh, in your neighborhood to feel fear that's already been there and worry that like, you know, there's a lack of safety and that could increase around us or, you know, so I, it definitely affects people, even if it's not right in front of you, because it's like, we don't, what's going to happen next. Like there's so much stuff coming at us in this world right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, like, let's just brace ourselves for the next shit storm, I guess. Am I allowed to say that? I'm oh, yeah, we, we swear all the time. Okay. on here. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it definitely has happened. Um, and so more suicidal ideation, stuff like that, unfortunately, but. Uh, but yeah. So as a therapist, not only are you helping your clients through this period of time, you're also dealing with the same stuff, like you're in the middle of the wildfire with them. Where yeah. do you find an ability to replenish? Because you can't, I mean, therapy is such an intense job, right? And holding that yeah. space and helping somebody. Where do you find ways to replenish yourself? Yeah. I mean, I'm super lucky in, in, in that I love my job. Like before I changed careers, I figured I would like it. Like I just have, I'm well suited for it. And 
but I didn't know how much I would really love it. And so that I'm very lucky for that. Also, I've had all of these like decades of training doing sex work to understand how to compartmentalize and how to like, you know, do that emotional labor and like not really absorb stuff too much. So that was really helpful for me. But, you know, right now it's, um, I, I mentioned before we went on air is that I am trying to do less work. Mm-hmm. Um, I work, I picked, I worked a lot more in the beginning of the pandemic because there was need and I didn't have anything else to do. So like I was <laughs> in my room, I was working every day, you know? And so and that was not sustainable, but that's how I got through a certain period of it because really I get so much out of my work, even though it's really intense and really hard. It can be, it can be really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I see a lot of variety of people and so it's mixed up. And so, you know, that's really nice. Um, and I, you know, I love all my clients and so I, it feels good to, even when it's, it's hard, it still feels good, you know, um, to be doing the work. And so, but apart from that, so work, so now intentionally working less and like mm-hmm. making sure to build in time off. Like I took a staycation, um, around Memorial day, I took like a very long weekend. That was a whole week. So, you know, and I didn't go any, I, you know, I just did mm-hmm. stuff here to make sure that I'm resting and not, you know, not kind of getting swept away with the whole being productive and making so much money. And it's like, you know, and no, I'm finally like, I feel stable. I feel financially stable. I don't need to like do the normative thing, which is like, let me just grab as much money as I can for people. I'm not going to leave anything to anyone. (laughs) Anyone who's listening, who expected something like, here's the news, like you're not getting anything. I'm going to spend it all. So, um, (laughs) but you know, I mean, and also just community, like reminding myself to reach out for support to people. And I, I meet with um, my therapist friends regularly and we chat about stuff because there's some stuff that like, I, it's hard to talk about with people that are not therapists, but like, I also need to have lots of support from my community friends because that's just, you know, it's very grounding and um, super important. So I would say like resting and, and lots of community, um, lots of chosen family support. Yeah, the chosen family, I don't think can be underestimated in the role it plays, especially yeah. for so many of us in the in the queer community. Um, so while you're doing less work now, you have done really, I, so I read a whole bunch of your academic stuff because I'm a big academic nerd and I, I love reading that stuff. Um, you did some really interesting work on subspace, which is a topic that comes up a lot in passing when you're talking to different Mm -hmm. kinky people, but it's not understood very well. And there's not a lot of research on it. I know It's crazy. Uh, Like like the psych nerd in me who loved the altered states of consciousness classes was like, how is this not more research? But um, so do you want to start with basically a, a, you know, kind of a, a condensed version of what subspace is and what you found when you looked at it? Because you have a couple of papers out on it. Yeah. Well, I, so I've witnessed a lot of different people in subspace, you know, because of my, you know, relationships and also my, my former job. And so I knew what it was and everybody in the community in the King community knows what it is, but it's not like pretty much, I don't like to say Mm -hmm. it, but like, basically it's known. And, um, you know, so it is really surprising. And then once I got more into academia and studying, you know, kink and sexuality and everything, I was like, 
like you're saying exactly what you said. Like, I was like, what, you know, where, how is nobody. And so I love talking about things that nobody else will talk about because mm-hmm. that's, just, uh, it's super fun for me and it also feels important. And so um, I was like, let me look into this. And so, yeah, I mean, and so subspace, First, I'll say, you know, when I would witness it before Mm -hmm. I studied it, I would see people change and they would get high and I would be like, oh, that's interesting. And it's not the same for everybody, but like typically and not everybody can access it. And I I always like to say, like, it's totally fine if you can't. Maybe you don't want to. Maybe it's not your thing. Maybe it's not available and it's fine. It doesn't mean you're not Mm -hmm. having a great time. Right. But but like you said, it is an altered state of consciousness and I could see it happen, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and part of why I could really see it, I think, because I was as a, as a sex worker, I'm service topping, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's basically what I'm, that's like in, in effect what I'm doing. And so I'm there really observing and being a person who likes to observe and like, look at, you know, I'm looking at these clients like data, like subjects and like, you know, so collecting that anecdotal data. Um, and then, so then when I studied it, I did get into like, there. there's mentions, there are mentions of subspace in kink focused academic articles, but no, like, like you said, there's nothing more. There's just like these little sprinkles. And I was like, Hmm, that's interesting. So I kind of pulled from these different articles and it's just like when I'm doing any kind of research and publishing on kink, let's say that's not really been done. There's a lot more now, but um, you know, I'll pull from other marginalized communities because there are so many similarities with stigma and with like different, you know, kinds of relationships so many overlaps also with the, the, the queer, the trans, the kink, the poly community, like there are a lot of, there's a lot of non-monog, a lot more non-monogamy in all of these communities, a lot more of all of these other kinds of orientations and, and expressions. So, you know, pulling from different areas to understand what, to see how I could um, explain subspace out of what I knew mm-hmm. and what was in the literature and then looking at other things that were similar. And so then there's actually a ton of research on altered states of consciousness, you know, a lot of it on, um, you know, drug use, substance Mm -hmm. use, um, but also in religion, a ton of, ton of it on religion. And there's sort of these, a lot of these different kinds. And um, so what's happening then when, when a person goes into subspace, there's this like neurochemical, change that happens and a full on central nervous system change. And it's got to do with like how somebody connects psychologically with their sexuality, with the power dynamic or the behavior, their activity that's going on. And then it's this like little domino effect of, um, you know, a shift in consciousness. That's kind of like um, this for a lot of people describe it as like a real, a big release and kind of um, really letting go of control. Um, They're in, I hopefully, you know, usually I I like to think they're in a trusted, they're with a trusted partner and that's what helps to facilitate it most often. Um, And then they're, they're kind of this, in this different consciousness in different state of consciousness um, where all sorts of things can happen. Like maybe they are feeling um, more pleasure or more calm or, you know, more connected to their partner all sorts of things like that happen, right? Yeah. One of the things I loved about your work too is 
you didn't completely medicalize subspace. So much of academic work likes to attribute it just to the various neurotransmitters and hormones that are released, right? right? You recognize that there's other aspects of accessing that. So especially being able to look at your practice in your own life when you've seen people go into it, whether it be partners or clients or whatever, um, what are those additional things that need to be there to help facilitate this? Because I think that's what's missing in so much of the discussion. Yeah. Well, I really think, you know, so subspace tends to be a kind of, it can be very deep, uh, deep sort of experience for people. And, um, you know, so to, to, you know, to set up, to set the scene for it, I feel like, just like setting up any good scene, like if we're talking about a kink scene or really any kind of sex at all, I would say this applies to anybody is just to, like I said, to have that kind of foundation of trust with a partner and to have really talked about to kind of know them and to trust them and to communicate what your needs are to have, to, to really create a container, a holding, like a holding space, a safe space um, with an understanding of, like what could happen, like if there's trauma, like have, you know, people talking about stuff like that could come in, um, how that could play out. How will you know, you know, conversations ahead of time, like what does it look like um, when you're in subspace? What do you need? Um, just to kind of know, because the subconscious will file that away. Mm-hmm. And we're really kind of, I feel like subspace in part is accessing some of the subconscious and really you know, we, we're not, we don't know a lot, like we know a lot about the brain and we also don't know a lot about the brain. Like it's, so it's really hard to talk about, get into, you know, very specific descriptions of altered states of consciousness, but we can, we kind of know what happens. I think that's why a lot of people really medicalize it. Cause then you can measure these like chemicals and things like that, but it's much more than that. And for some, a lot of people, it's like a mystical or spiritual experience too, um, which is very hard to measure. It's such a subjective thing. And so, but I think really setting up uh, communicating with one's partner, making sure that like the whole thing is kind of thought about and talked about what's going to happen. What do you need before, during, after all of that? Um, and not being afraid to, to talk about it and be honest with Mm -hmm. with oneself and in each other. I don't know. That's the way I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the honesty is some of the hard part, especially for people who are new to exploring kink, because it can be very hard to admit you don't know what's going to happen or you've never done this before. That level yeah. of honesty, it gets tricky. And just knowing yourself, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Right. And like, that's, that's so true. And also um, what makes it hard is the stigma. Like, you know, there it's like, we're a lot of people in these communities are, we're kind of like on our guard, like it's, this feels hard to say because I don't really know how that person's going to react. Even if the other person is kinky, it's like kind of a lot of people build up this sort of, defensiveness or this guard about it just because you know we have to um at this point I don't care like I will just say whatever and like I find that very helpful because I'll say ahead of time what my expectations are and before I meet someone and then I you know I'm not really doing too much of that these days but um you know that's that makes it so much easier but it for a a lot of people it's very hard to do that even if they're not new even if Mm -hmm. you know been around a while just because of depending on what's going on there like internalized stigma Yeah. One of the things you've mentioned in a couple of articles too, is that kink can be a real healing experience for people. And there's been a growing amount of scholarship looking at the role of BDSM 
paired with therapy. Have you explored much of that where people are working through issues with a therapist, they'll have a separate partner for BDSM, but where it can really work as healing, or is that something you haven't explored yet? Yeah, well, I've certainly um, talked to people about this for sure. I mean, I consider, I would, I, I have talked to my, like some therapy clients about that. I witnessed it when I was a, a sex worker, I witnessed people that happening sort of almost accidentally. It's very rare that somebody would come to me and say like, I would like to do this to work through my trauma. I do mm-hmm. think that it, eventually later on, it started happening because I was growing and I was like interested in like conversations were more possible, but usually people do that accidentally. And I, I feel like that's, that's kind of dangerous. Like you don't know if you'll get re-traumatized. So I think it can be great, but it's kind of really next level stuff. And so I, again, it's got to be with a very trusted partner. And um, I love the idea. It hasn't really happened where it's where I've worked with a therapy client and they've been working with do that because of law, you know, laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, there are like, you know, certified surrogates and things like that. I just, am not sure how much kink, like how specialized in kink they do, but, um, and for some people it can be really useful. Like I've had therapy clients come to me and saying like, I find myself in my with sexual partners reliving this thing. And I'm like noticing it feels a lot like this experience I had that was traumatizing. I'm like, you're trying, you know, your brain is trying to do this. Like, if you're going to do it anyway, what, let, like, how can you really set yourself up to be as safe as possible and to really get something out of it, you know, and that it, you have to kind of talk to people to get like the optimum experience, but some people just don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. doing that. And so if they don't, then it's more of a harm reduction thing where it's like, well, how do you set yourself up, you know, keep yourself safe. But yeah, I think, um, I think it's totally possible to work through um, trauma with kink, but only if you're kinky, like if you're mm-hmm. not kinky, you will probably re-traumatize yourself by doing that. It's not available to people who aren't kinky. I'm sorry, don't do it. <laughs> I'm just going to say that, <laughs> um, you know, mm-hmm. and, but if it's like, if you're kinky, there are multiple ways to work through trauma and it's using kink for that is, you know, not for everyone, but if you find yourself thinking about it or doing it anyway, then yeah, prop, chances are you can, if you're very intentional and talk to like ideally a therapist or like, mm-hmm. you, you know, your community and your partner and say like, this is happening. Can we make a very safe container and see what we can do? Because when you do that, what you're doing is um, even, let's say you're reliving a, an experience, a traumatic experience mm-hmm. in the confines of a kink scene behaviorally it could look exactly the same like if an outsider were to watch the two scenes they may be like there's the same thing going on but psychologically it's completely different and that difference can be what's healing um the mm-hmm. fact that excuse me typically people feel empowered because it's their decision they have control they can stop it they know when it's going to start and end usually they you know and that's in the back of their mind the whole time and so it's kind of rewriting that narrative for them Um, so it can be, it can be great, but again, it's next level. And I'm not saying that for people to be like, 
ooh, I want to do next level. It's like, seriously, it can be very dangerous and re-traumatizing if you're not ready or it's not right for you. And there, luckily there's other options to work with trauma. So that's where I feel I always put the warning on this conversation that don't sleep with your therapist and don't turn who you're sleeping with into your therapist. Those need to be two separate entities, two separate people. Yeah. No, I think that's, I love that. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. No. And you really do bring it. It has to be very, a very safe and trusting space. You've got to do a lot of planning around this. This is not something to go into and do a pickup placing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's the thing is I've had people come to me um, who were doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can be accidentally okay, but it's, it's, it's pretty dangerous, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, if I see that happening, you know, I will, I'll mention it and we'll really talk about it, but yeah, certainly don't advise that for pickup play. Yeah. So before we we go into the other parts of the show, you have a fantastic suggested reading list on your website. Um, what are you reading now and what are you really getting something out of? Well, I don't know if this is, <laughs> I mean, I read science fiction for, in my off time. I'm not, I don't we love re- sci-fi. On the yeah, show, I'm not, so. Okay. I'm not really reading any like, you know, juicy therapy books right now. I, a lot of people are really like liking polysecure right now for a therapy mm-hmm. Um. And there's like, you know, other therapy books coming out. But anyway, um, right now I'm reading, um, what is it? I don't know. Yeah, just some some like whack, wacky science fiction. I really like the ones that are very unrealistic, that are uh, ideally on other planets or, or with robots. Uh, I love, so I'm reading Cameron Hurley right now, who is really, mm-hmm. really good. But I have to say, I not too long ago, got through the whole Murderbot Diaries series. And I just am very sad that it's over. I just fell in love with Murderbot. And I, I just, that character just, you know, is very touching. It's a very sweet robot who kills people, but doesn't always want to. And and so doesn't sometimes. It's, it's super interesting. Actually, that's the first time I've heard it mentioned, but I was, I just finished Manhunt by Gretchen Fel- Felker Martin, who oh, we had I read on the that show. Too. That, was, that was really horrifying, but also very good. <laughs> she is so fascinating. She's a total fascinating interview. Um, but yes, I've been looking for another one. So I think I'm going to have to pick, pick up the Murderbot series because that sounds so good. Yeah, it's, it's fun. And it's really, it really touched the part of me that's like the outsider part, like this, this, this Murderbot is just the cutest oh i guess i must think that i'm cute as well i'm saying (laughs) that's That's gonna be so much fun yeah Um, (laughs) so if our listeners want to find you they want to find your work they want to read your work they want to reach out to you for therapy where do they go for all the things yeah um all of that is linked to my website which is dulcineapitagora.com um so i probably you're gonna you're going to link to that somewhere. Yeah. We'll put all the links. I know it's a pain in the ass to spell. It's there's so many letters, (laughs) you know, Yeah, we'll have that on the site. (laughs) I mean, there's also kinkdoctor.com, which uh, a lot of people find easier to spell (laughs) and it, that links back to me, but really um, my, that's, that's more of just a, you know, that's a different, that's not like for Mm -hmm. booking therapy. It's got some, it's got kind of the same, it's got a lot of the press stuff. I'm, I talk a lot in, you know, different, um, different like online magazine articles, but it also, I link to all my papers on there and 
you should be able to download all of them from there, even though I'm not not really supposed to do that all the time. Some of them are behind a paywall. Can you hear me when I say that? Some of them are behind a paywall, but I feel like if I'm not selling them, I think it's okay, except for one time it wasn't okay, so I took it down. But anyway, you can read some of my work on my website um, and definitely contact me. for. I'm I'm booked up for therapy right now, but I have a team of people that I work with and I sometimes get openings or I do drop-ins. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really fun. And now, a moment of gratitude. Um, you know, I I'll go back to community, like I you know we were talking about before. Um, especially seeing uh, all the stuff in the news and just everything that goes on. And then I, you know, I'll go back to my little bubble, like, and look at what people are, and then people are just supporting each other. Um, And that's, and we have to, you know, community has to support each other because a lot of times that's all, that's the best, that's what we've got. And I see that all the time. And that's just, I find that incredibly moving. Um, So I'm just always grateful for that. Yeah. Hi, this is Antivice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to take a minute and talk about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles on the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire internet has become listenable all in one place. This is great for accessibility needs as well as people who would rather listen than scroll. Explore trending podcasts from 50 countries. Our podcast, Fat Chicks on Top, is there too. You can download Newsly for free from www.newsly.me and use the promo code FC0T, one month free premium subscription. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.